Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and I am thrilled to have this guest on today. We're talking with Dr. James Bratt, and he wrote this great book with Dr. John F. Wolverton called A Christian and a Democrat, A Religious Biography of Franklin D. Roosevelt. It's published by Erdman's Books. It's part of their fantastic religious biography series. And Jim, thanks so much for being on the show. We really appreciate well, it. Well, I'm delighted to be with you. So um, I, I've really enjoyed working on this project, and I'm glad to uh, let people know about it. Oh, thanks, Jim. Yeah, I just got to say, the book is phenomenal. I really enjoyed reading it. And I, I mean, most people, we, most people who love history, I mean, first of all, FDR, it's a name that we're all familiar with, uh, mostly because of the Great Depression and World War II. He's a monumental figure within American history. And is, this is the first religious biography on him. Am I correct on well, that? Well, there have been some others, um, more um, journalistic memoirs, more journalistic impressions. So I, I think it's safe to say this is the first full-scale um, scholarly religious biography of FDR. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, very eye-opening. So, uh, Jim, you know, just before we jump into the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, like, you know, uh, where you went to school, your research interests, and how did you get involved with this project? Okay, yeah. Well, I got my PhD at Yale University um, more years ago than I like to acknowledge, but I worked with, um, you know, one of the great religious historians, of certainly of his generation, really of all time, uh, Sidney Alstrom. It was very eclectic in his interests, um, uh, very interested in uh, getting all the parts of the American religious hist- hist- uh, story uh, out there. And so um, I, I secondarily worked with uh, David Brian Davis, who was probably the premier historian of American slavery at the time. So I have an interest in religion. I've always had a strong interest in religion, but um, not so much the theology or the teachings or the rituals just in themselves, but also how this gets outside the church or the temple or the uh, the mosque walls uh, and um, gets into everyday life. So church and society, church and um, religion and, and society, religion and culture, and particularly religion and politics. That's been a real uh, long-standing interest of mine. So um, when I heard about, um, uh, through a mutual friend, I've never met uh, John Wolverton, unfortunately, um, but when he passed away, um, uh, a mutual acquaintance uh, uh, passed along a short uh, tribute, uh, uh, an obit, that he had written for Professor Wolverton. And I read in there that um, John Wolverton had completed this huge uh, biography, religious biography of Franklin Roosevelt, um, and it remained unpublished and slightly unfinished at his death. And I thought, geez, that's a shame. And I just retired from my um, long-standing job, my professorship. I thought that would be a really cool project to get to get uh, get into. And also, frankly, um, be, because uh, religion and politics today is t- uh, unfortunately totally associated with the religious right. 
and it can have a really obnoxious, in my view, an obnoxious agenda and a very bad tone. And I just wanted to recover and put out a story that shows that um, religious involvement in American politics uh, in the past has also been uh, much more positive and much more progressive. And this biography was, is tailor-made for that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was it it's beautifully written and it really does it um I agree with you it's just it's so it's so partisan today and politically charged and this book was a was very refreshing just to kind of read the um cuz I, I will jump into that but you had talked about you know how you know there's this argument within American religion of like civic religion especially within the 20th century and you know you and uh John you guys you guys kind of push against that we're saying FDR wasn't necessarily a civic religion but he was it was almost like a quiet religion that he had or a more personal religion that he would bring out within his public life and I really appreciated that it was it, it brings a whole new light to uh American history yeah you know, um yeah we make a point that um FDR was not um, a real proponent or he, he was not a deep believer in what's called American civil religion, which makes the nation the highest object of reverence and makes its rituals, the, the you know, the patriotic rituals, uh, the real essence of religion. FDR had a genuine, uh, fairly liberal kind of Christian religion. And um, what I found really encouraging is that there was a lot of interface between that genuine uh, religious tradition and public service, um, the public sphere. So it's a genuine religion, uh, in this case, Christian. It could be Jewish, it could be Buddhist, it could be Muslim, whatever. A genuine religion with um, a strong civic uh, component, with a, a strong sense of, of public responsibility. We got to get... Um, uh, for FDR, particularly the ethics of Christianity outside the church walls and into the larger society. And uh, that is essentially that's the, um, the message or the thesis of this book, that a lot of uh, what we recognize as the New Deal is a translation from um, FDR's kind of um, Episcopal social gospel uh, upbringing into um, the heart and soul of American life. Very nice. Very nice. Absolutely. So I had another question, uh, just so the readers know, the foreword's by James Comey. And uh, how did you get James Comey to write, the former FBI director, how did you guys get him to write the foreword for this book? Well, I didn't, but uh, John Wolverton, uh, Wolverton's son, um, Arthur, did. Um, as it turns out, uh, John Wolverton guest prof was a guest professor at William & Mary for a year. Um, and William & Mary at that time was where uh, James Comey was a, a college student. And um, he, signed, he, Comey, signed up for Wolverton's course on kind of modern Christian thinkers or modern theologians. And um, one of the uh, figures covered in there, and indeed he deserved to be, is uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. And both as a, for his public philosophy, for his, um, for his uh, philosophy of service, and also out of some personal crisis, James, in his life, uh, his recent life, James Comey found Reinhold Niebuhr really very, very helpful, and he was always grateful to Professor Wolverton for introducing that. The two became friends. They stayed in touch. And um, when John Wolverton passed away a few years ago, um, uh, then I think um, Director Comey 
uh, said to the family that um, I owe so much to your father. Uh, if I ever can do anything to promote his memory or whatever, uh, let me know. And so um, when this book's ready to come out, they said, well, how about the, the son contacted him and said, how about a forward? And um, he said, done and done. And it came in and it's, it's a very effective piece of writing, very, very um, poignant um, how Comey remembers um, Wolverton and why he thinks this, he, Comey, thinks this book is important. Oh, terrific. All right. So I have, so I have a question. Why was John Wolverton and why are you, why were you so interested in FDR? And I guess more importantly, why were you interested in FDR's religion? Because it seems that like you had said, there was uh, you know some journalistic impressions of FDR's religion, but for the most part, there really hasn't hasn't been this comprehensive um, examination of it. And you guys really kind of dive into it. Yeah. So, what what drew you to FDR? Um, well, I think we have to talk first of all about Professor Wolberton's side in it um, because he did the he did the writing, I did the uh, the editing. I added one short chapter, but this is really Professor Wolberton's book with my. Um, editorial work to get it ready to go to press. Um, well, John Wolverton is uh, followed in many of the same pathways as Wol- as uh, Roosevelt did. Uh, Wolverton uh, is was an Episcopal- Episcopalian. He um, he went to Groton as FDR did for um, prep school for high school. He went to Harvard as FDR did. Um, his wife, um, Professor Wolverton's wife, um, went to uh, attended Eleanor Roosevelt School, um, and uh, Frances Perkins, who has a pretty important role in this book and this whole story. She was the uh, Secretary of Labor, and she uh, initiated. She got ready a lot of the critical New Deal legislation. Uh, Frances Perkins was um, a friend of the Wolverton family, uh, so there's a really strong personal connection there. Um, also, um, uh, yeah, uh, so as a historian of the Episcopal Church, John Wolverton thought that uh, FDR was one of the neglected subjects in that whole domain, and he resolved to do something about that. Um, I got interested in it, as I said, because I think we um, need some uh, to recover um, some examples or discover examples of uh, religion playing a much more progressive role in American politics than has recently been the case. So I have uh, pretty much, an, I, I admit, I have an advocacy interest in this. Um, now, as to your other question of why um, FDR's religion has not been investigated so much, um, FDR had a well-earned reputation of being a very, very able politician and really able to get down in the, in the dust and and fight hard political fights. And we our notion is that that can't be, um, that doesn't associate with religion, right? Because religion is about high ideals, it's about nice people, it's about noble goals, blah, blah, blah. And that doesn't go with politics. Um, also, FDR never talked that much in public about his religion. He... Um, he really disliked to um, have reporters observing him when he would go to church and, and be at his prayers. Uh, so, yeah, he had a very strong, very deep personal sense, um, a private um, sense of uh, kind of the sacred um, part of him that he didn't want uh, newspaper uh, people to be looking in at. 
And he thought it was pretty crass when people would angle for votes um, on an overtly religious uh, back uh, basis. So, for instance, um, one of his mentors, Al Smith, ran for president in 1928 on the Democratic ticket. Al Smith was the first Roman Catholic, well, not the first, but the, he was the um, second Roman Catholic to run for the presidency. And um, uh, the Republican opposition made a great big deal of that. And indeed, it cost Smith a good number of votes. Um, so um, uh, FDR really resented that. So he, he was he was scared, uh, averse to making religion um, something to fight about or fight with. Um, and yet it was um, um, a, a deep part of his personal core. So part of the project of this book was to show how this <clears throat> deeply um, personal inner core got translated out into got carried over into um, very nitty-gritty political action. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, and so what I found interesting was how how um, John and you got into the religious mind of FDR. Could you explain for us a little bit, how did you guys do that? And, and really, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, because he was so private, what historical sources did you use to kind of look at uh, FDR's religion? Yeah. Yeah, well, there are some key speeches um, where FDR became very explicit about religion. Well, let me back up a minute. First of all, when he would uh, take the oath of office uh, twice as governor of New York, four times as president of the United States, he had the old family Bible, which came over in the ship from the Netherlands. So it's uh, the Staten Bible, uh, the, the official Dutch translation from the 17th century. He, had, he would uh, be sworn in on that, and he always had it open to uh, Paul's uh, letter to, uh, first letter to the Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and that's, that's one of the most memorable parts of uh, St. Paul's writings, of course, a very famous passage. And um, uh, he, uh, he, Paul, concludes that chapter by saying, now um, there are by these three things, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And um, Roosevelt, FDR, quite often referred to that triad, the faith, hope, and love, um, as the kind of the core of the Christian gospel, and and uh, at the same time, um, kind of the core of human decency, the core of what should mark, the key, the key markers of what would be a decent society, what a society should aspire to. So he's, re he's uh, calling this up um, again and again. Uh, Roosevelt also called up uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, key elements of that again and again. Um, so this is the kind of the stuff that's always running through Roosevelt. Then there are some key moments where he, um, um, uh, in a State of the Union message or, or you know, important addresses, um, uh, he gets very explicit about religion. Again, refers to 1 Corinthians 13. Um Professor Wolverton includes in this book uh, for the first time um, kind of the edited copy of uh, FDR's famous prayer at D-Day. So uh, when the D-Day um, invasion was occurring, Roosevelt went on the, on the radio that night, which was the way that, you know, presidents communicated to everybody at that point. And he read this prayer um, 
And you can, uh, Professor Wolverton recovered the original text and then looked at FDR's um, edits. And we have this in this book, a black line edit, where he inserted some things, took away other things. And you realize what a very, very good wordsmith FDR was. Every time he makes a change, uh, the image is more memorable. The verb is stronger. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, um, he, he, was, uh, he was really a genius with words. So um, then there's one other dimension that's, that was uh, crucial to the book, and that is to look at uh, Roosevelt's formation. Um, he was um, a lifelong member of uh, St. James Episcopal Church in Hyde Park. His father, James Roosevelt, served on the vestry there, the governing board, uh, for decades. And FDR himself was on the vestry for decades. While he was president, in fact, uh, uh, <laughs> he would be a part of his day every once in a while would be devoted to stuff that happening at his home church. So he had... Um, a living um, connection with a particular congregation. Um, beside that, um, Professor Wolverton um, looked at who his tutor was, his um, uh, this uh, French woman who was FDR's tutor when he was um, being kind of homeschooled, we would say, at Hyde Park. And then especially at his formation at Groton School, where he went for uh, uh, late middle school and high school, um, and under the uh, leadership of Etiquette Peabody, who was a very uh, <laughs> strong, intimidating, uh, loving, tough love kind of guy. He was kind of the uh, most eminent uh, prep school headmaster, maybe in American history. I mean, Etiquette Peabody kind of set the, set the gold standard. And Etiquette Peabody was very, very serious and very effective at suffusing the education at Groton with, um, um, you know, progressive Christian um, ideals, uh, not just in theology, not so much in theology, but in uh, giving these young men a sense of purpose and a sense of obligation. Uh, Endicott Peabody said to this, I mean, it's the emerging ruling class of the Gilded Age, right? Um, and he said uh, essentially to them, Every day, every year, every month of every year, you you guys have great privilege, and with that comes great responsibility. And here's how you do that. So, uh, uh, Professor Wolverton dug very deeply into uh, 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 Roosevelt's um, educational formation, we would say, and uh, how this uh, comes through, uh, kind of set him on the course that would come through ultimately in the New Deal. Great. Well, I guess that kind of brings me to my next question is, what did FDR's Christianity look like? Just kind of like a quick overview. And you did touch on how he formed his Christianity, which was fascinating. Could you just kind of give us a brief overview of that? Because I know it's mostly in the book, so we want people to read it. But FDR's Christianity, really, it really struck me how, how, um, how influential it was, not only for his personal life, but how it also affected his his actions for the country. Yeah. Um, well, picking up from that theme, I just mentioned about um, with privilege and power come responsibility. Um, um, there, there was a, I don't think that um, 
Roosevelt had this professor at Harvard, but one of the great professors at Harvard, great philosophers, was Josiah Royce, who uh, kind of popularized the theme of uh, the beloved community, that the good life is one in which we take part and, and our deepest hearts yearning are to take part in a community of sharing, a community of loyalty, of obligation, and of, of, of great love. Um, uh, not not um, touchy-feely, um, uh, sentimental love, but love measured by um, uh, serving and helping and having high regard for our neighbor. And I think that's the crux of uh, Franklin Roosevelt's religion. Um, you know, he was part of the aristocracy Very of cool. the Hudson River. Yeah. And his uh, father modeled that. He, his father took all this um, noblesse oblige uh, roles in the local community. He knew that he had been put in a privileged and powerful position. And um, he knew that the measure of how well he did in that was not whether he got more money like the neighboring Vanderbilts, but whether he made his community a happier um, more integrated um, place where people took care of each other. And Franklin Roosevelt, and this is where he ran into some difficulties too, Franklin Roosevelt dreamed of the United States as that kind of local community where um, neighbors really looked out for each other, uh, carried each other in affection. And um, so um Translating that into policy was what uh, the New Deal was about, the Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, where you're caring for the earth as, as well as um, giving mostly young men, but you know, thousands and thousands of young men who are otherwise destitute, giving them a job, not just to um, you know, keep them uh, off the streets, but to give them dignity and give them hope and give them a sense of purpose. Um, also, Social Security, uh, which uh, Francis Perkins essentially wrote up, um, that people, uh, I mean, one of the greatest groups in poverty in the United States in the 1920s was elderly people. And uh, FDR said, we got to turn that around. Um, people who've worked their whole life here should have um, um, some uh, a basic uh, foundation on which they can rely financially. And that has, that has worked um, as intended. Also, recognition of labor unions, um, another key part of the FDR or of the New Deal. Uh, corporate business has a whole lot of collective power. Um, workers should have um, um, kind of a comparable uh, concentration of power. So, uh, I mean, Roosevelt was no sentimentalist. He knew that people uh, <laughs> respond to, to force and to power. And so... Uh, Labor unions would give uh, the workers um, a, a voice, um, and that would also, again, increase their solidarity and their sense of dignity and um, of self-regard. So um, it's a frequent mistake to think that the New Deal was just throwing money at people, uh, lazy people, or just to keep them out of trouble or whatever. Um, FDR really hated um, handouts. What he wanted was what we would call investment in human and social capital. Uh, the GI Bill is another expression of this. So you, you give people a sense of hope. You give them um, the talent. The, you invest in them to give them the skills so that they can realize the human potential in them. Um, 
Roosevelt had a strong sense of innate human dignity and possibility. And things go wrong in society, he thought, when uh, this is quashed or this is not realized. So his programs aimed at um, activating these better parts of people so that they could take a full participation in American society. He thought that that's what democracy really was, not just voting once every two or four years, but being a full participant with your fellow citizens, with your equals, in making a better life for everybody. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff because it seems that FDR had this social gospel mindset in a way where I know, yeah. you know, the social gospel was late 19th, early 20th century, but FDR is kind of carrying it on forwards in the mid 20th century. And you did touch on and you and John did touch on that in the book, but would you agree with that? I mean, that he had this very social, it sounds like you're saying he had this very social gospel mentality and he just kind of implemented that within, you know, civic society. Right. Yeah. So the social gospel really got going, um, Oh, in the 1880s, um, 1890s, and really inspired a lot of the uh, people who were involved, at least the white Protestant uh, and some African-American Protestant people as well, who were involved in the progressive era. Um, that's where, um, so the Gilded Age and the progressive era is where uh, Roosevelt had his education, first of all, and then his first forays into politics. Uh, he was undersecretary of the Navy, for instance, for uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was one of the great uh, progressive presidents. The other great progressive president, of course, was uh, FDR's distant cousin, Theodore. Um, so, uh, or distant um, uh, uncle, <laughs> uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, so, uh, with World War I and then the uh, collapse of idealism after World War I and the uh, uh, the make a lot of money uh, mood of the 1920s, it seemed that the social gospel was dead. But um, Roosevelt brought it back for a new era in American politics. Uh, he said, this is, this is not dead. This just has to be translated into uh, uh, terms of um, a mass industrial society. And um, so the social insurance uh, uh, recognition of labor unions and so forth. All this had been part of the social gospel, and a lot of it had been part of the progressive era aims. And um, Roosevelt was uh, an extremely able politician, and he made it happen. And for that matter, um, <laughs> the times were meant for him too, because after the uh, stock market crash and then the <clears throat> entry of uh, the descent of the United States and the rest of the uh, Atlantic world into the Great Depression, there certainly was a need for um, these old progressive programs again, now adapted to, um, you know, to the mid the mid 20th century, as you said. Yeah. So when we think about FDR too, we often think about him, you know, and his, his polio and him being in a wheelchair. And I could imagine, and you guys do touch on this in the book, how did his religion, how is his religion affected by his disease? And I guess vice versa, how did his disease affect his religion? Because I, 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 that was one of the biggest questions I had when picking up this book was that you could just imagine just this, this, it almost seems like an insurmountable feat that he has to overcome yeah. to this disease, but he does do it and he, he achieves great things. And you bring out, and John brings out this idea that, you know, that, that was a major impact on his life 
with his religion as well. Yeah, well, we never wish uh, catastrophes like this on anybody. But in retrospect, um, this in a way was the making. This polio, um, this uh, paralysis, um, well, I, you know, I hate to say this because this can be misinterpreted, but uh, it was one of the better things that ever happened to Roosevelt. Because before this, he had been kind of a callow playboy type. He was a fair-haired boy. He was he was very popular um, with with um, the elites. Um, people found him uh, found him uh, possibly too flippant. Uh, we would say feeling too entitled. And um, this uh, this um, onset of paralysis was really, in religious terms, um, FDR's descent into the depths. This was his descent into hell. And this really made him come to terms with the issues of life. This got him over his sense of entitlement. This um, said life is serious, and if you're going to be anything, you're uh, worthwhile. You're going to have to fight to be that. So it made him, I would say, a deeper and richer and more serious person. Now, please don't go out and the next time you see someone struggling, say, oh, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life and this is be the good best thing that could ever happen to you. This is for the sufferer, him or herself to discover, okay? <laughs> and uh, But in, in any case, in Roosevelt's um, case, he did, he did discover it. And the other thing he discovered, um, this limited his mobility in many ways, but also in a certain sense, it increased his mobility because he, uh, for therapy, um, he went down and he founded this um, hospital, this full care society, uh, um, uh, facility at Warm Springs. Uh, it was the best um, place to be treated for paralysis in the United States at the time. He put um, over half of his own considerable personal fortune into this. Some people thought it was a fool's errand. But anyway, um, down there, he met a, a much richer mix of people than he would have met, you know, just hanging around with his Groton and Harvard and, um, and Hyde Park, um, Hudson Valley elite buddies. And he also had um, custom made this automobile that he could drive around the um, back roads of, of Georgia and the back roads uh, around Hyde Park. And um, so he, he loved to get out um, of, of the pool and he loved to get out of the confines of Warm Springs. So he would putt around the Georgia countryside in this, this um, customized um, automobile with handbrakes and everything. And he'd see, um, you know, a poor cotton farmer, dirt farmer working around, uh, with, you know, with a mule and a plow. And he'd um, call them over and they would chat. And he, uh, Roosevelt here confronted uh, poverty and um, but amid that great human dignity as he never otherwise had or would have. So getting deep within himself and reaching out to, um, in a, a vast new way to ordinary uh, people, this is what that paralysis did for him. Um, and yeah, it... Um, it summoned up sources, this crisis, um, as very often happens in history, right? Um, we get profound religious conversions, um, profound new sense of purpose out of um, a crisis or a catastrophe. Um, 
And uh, this is, so I think this was the, the, in many ways, the making of the ultimately uh, successful FDR. Yeah. I like how you said that, how, how, um, you know, how you mentioned the word catastrophe, because it just seems that, you know, FDR's tenure as president, I mean, two catastrophic events for the United States, the Great Depression and World War II. I mean, these are just monumental, uh, you know, catastrophes for the country. And yet here he is kind of at the wheel of the, at the wheel and he's, he's kind of leading the country forward. But I thought also, I kind of got that sense that, you know, because he had the polio, it really helped him empathize with average Americans who were suffering during the Great Depression. And that also seemed to really influence his religion and how he kind of guided, you know, the country with the New Deal and all these social programs to kind of get people back on their feet, as you were mentioning. Yeah, he, um, I think, he, I mean, he was a, a brilliant communicator using the then relatively new technology of uh, mass um, distribution radio. Um, you know, broadcasting um, radio had kind of been a little hobby uh, for, for a lot of the uh, 20s, and, and it had become a very powerful public medium for the first time really in the 30s. And all the great uh, leaders of the day, um, uh, for better, I think of Roosevelt and Churchill, and also for worse, uh, Hitler and Mussolini, uh, were, able, very, were, were masters of this medium. And um, there are a countless number of people who said that uh, when they sat down and listened, uh, gathered around the big radio in the living room to listen to one of uh, FDR's fireside chats, it felt like he was just speaking to them directly, personally. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. This gave him great empathy. And um, John Wolverton, you know, uh, says in this book that um, FDR knew what to do about paralysis. <laughs> uh, personally, and therefore he could speak very effectively to um, a whole nation in paralysis. I mean, in 1933, early 33, when he's inaugurated, the whole country, the whole economy has seized up, right? Um, my oh, One of my grandfathers, for instance, uh, lost, he was just a pushcart carpenter in Holland, Michigan. He lost all his money in the bank because the, the bank that he had you know, put week by week, a little pittance of savings, and it went belly up, and that money was gone. Um, and, um, yeah, so Roosevelt um, communicated to um, a whole society in a very personal way out of his own personal experience of paralysis. And he, um, it's, it's really striking when you look at his first uh, inaugural address, um, uh, and this is so relevant to today. Um, I mean, in 1933, America really was amid carnage, right? Uh, it was uh, in destruction mode or destroyed mode. And Roosevelt came out um, and said, um, he gave a message of hope. Uh, overriding everything else was hope. And the great villain uh, on the scene, he said, was fear. And the only thing we have to fear, he said most memorably, is fear itself. So in the depths of this real American carnage, to come out with this very plausible voice of hope was, um, I don't know, I think it might have been the saving of the nation because um, there were plenty of would-be demagogues like uh, Mussolini around in the United States at that time. And if... Um, uh, the leader had appealed to people's baser nature. 
uh, who knows what might have happened. So um, uh, Roosevelt was, uh, I think this nation was very fortunate to have someone who believed in, um, well, faith, hope, and charity, St. Paul's trilogy, uh, or triad, um, and to communicate that effectively and to keep that constantly in people's view and to push through policies that uh, try to fulfill those values. Oh, wow. Yeah, for sure. I love what you're talking about, Jim, because you're giving us a whole new perspective on FDR um, that we don't often see in the history books. So it's just, it's really fascinating stuff. And, you know, as we all know, after the Great Depression, we enter World War II, and that's kind of what brings the United States out of the Great Depression. And I mean, there's this I mean, as you mentioned, you know, with Mussolini and Hitler, the world was changing drastically, and now the world is at war. So how does FDR switch gears from, you know, the Great Depression to World War II, and how is his religion affecting his decisions for the war? Yeah, um, here you get into um, more controversial ethical area, because uh, World War II was a total war. Um for the first time, at least in modern wars, um, by far most of the casualties of war were civilian. Um, some of the weapons that the United States used with the mass bombing, not to mention the atomic bombing, these were mostly inflicted on civilians, which violates the traditional code of uh, just war. So here we get into um, ethically more, you know, more challenging territory. What FDR said, however, was that, um, well, he said, this is a war um, to, uh, to, to save, the, uh, um, uh, save the future of democracy. Um, we have to, uh, people that we fight with or that we're allied with, like the, the Soviet Union, uh, FDR had no illusions about what was going on in Stalin's Russia. Um, but he said, um, Stalin and Russia are not a threat to the United States. Uh, Nazi Germany is a direct threat. And um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so he extended himself to keep uh, the Soviet Union in the war. Massive American um, material aid to, uh, to, to Russia and the Red Army. Um, so he, he said that... Um, to, to him, um, well, let me refer to the book's title, right? A Christian and a Democrat. That was FDR's uh, thumbnail description of what his political philosophy was. So Professor, well, actually, Francis Perkins had told this story in the first place, and John Wolverton picked up on it uh, at one of his zillion press conferences. Uh, a reporter um, asked uh, Roosevelt right off the top of his head, uh, well, President Roosevelt, what is your political philosophy? And uh, Roosevelt was not a philosopher, right? <laughs> and he, he was kind of um, flabbergasted, flummoxed for a minute. And he said, why? I, I'm, I'm a Christian and a Democrat, and that's it. Um, and um, not just a big D Democrat, but also a small D Democrat. He thought that democracy as a system was the political system that gave people most dignity, that accorded them dignity, that recognized their potential and gave them a possibility for realizing their, what was for him, uh, Roosevelt, God-given potential. Um, and the, the way to do that is to love your neighbor. And you love your neighbor best when you recognize that we're all equals. 
um, under the skin. Um, so that was what the New Deal was about, and that for him was what um, what uh, World War II was about. Um, he knew that um, there was a lot of suffering and death that was going to happen here, um, and um, you know he he consulted his prayer book every night before he would go to sleep. You know, the prayer book was lying right next to his ta- to his on uh, his nightstand, and uh, yeah, I would. If I could ha- go back and have a talk with him um, uh, and get him to um, be frank, and Roosevelt was notoriously not candid with uh, if, uh, when, when people came pestering him for this or that, but if I could get him um, uh, down and candid, um, I would say, "How do you? How you're fighting for a great ideal here, and you're using um, some pretty terrible methods? How does that sit with you?" Um, and I think that must have had um, some kind of deep um, deepening in him. Um, but um, what he did uh, was, uh, we say in the book, um, he kind of functioned uh, in his wartime addresses and his radio talks. He kind of functioned as kind of a pastor for the nation, um, saying that we're suffering a lot and a lot of terrible things are going on the world, going on in the world. But we keep hope alive, and to borrow something from the classic civil rights movement, we keep our eye on the prize, okay? So we don't get overexcited. We don't say that this war is going to be over in a year. Um, We have to be sober. We have to be disciplined. We have to not hate our enemies. He said that again and again and again. We have to not hate our enemies, or we have become like our enemies. Um, So he's kind of a... um, a perennial pastor to the nation, um, calming people down and uh, encouraging them for the long run because he knew that this war was going to take a long time. Hmm. Yeah, interesting stuff. Thanks, Jim. And another part of the book um, that I find as a real gem, it's the last chapter, and it's this comparison of FDR to Lincoln and to Hoover. And it's just a great chapter. And I just thought, I, of course, I want people to buy the book and to read it, but could you just kind of give us a, a brief overview? Why did why did John and you decide to kind of have that as the last chapter? This this comparison between the three of them. Yeah, well, this is entirely John. When I, when I got this manuscript from um, from the family, uh, I was reading through it, this and that. Yeah, okay. And then there's this last chapter. I said, "What the heck is this?" Because <laughs> it's not part of the chronology. But it, it does give a great, um, by, uh, by comparison, by drawing these comparisons, you get um, a better sense than ever of what Roosevelt was all about, particularly how his religion came through. Um, so the comparison to Hoover, um, first of all, because um, Hoover was his immediate predecessor, and Roosevelt and Hoover are always compared as uh, kind of uh, uh, antithetical, right? Um the Republican and the Democrat, the failure and the success, um, the free market and the uh, planned economy, blah, blah, blah. But uh, John uh, Wolverton points out um, in introducing Hoover how many, how much Hoover and Roosevelt shared back in the teens and the early 20s. Um, Herbert Hoover was an amazingly accomplished and effective, successful, progressive administrator during uh, World War I. He saved millions of lives in Europe by organizing food relief. 
Um, but then something happens or there's something different about Hoover. And uh, uh, John and I got down into uh, Hoover's Quaker religion and what that what that instilled in a person as a set of ideals. Um, and it was a kind of a distrust of politics, a very strong emphasis upon the inner sacredness of the individual can translate and did in um, Hoover's case into an, a philosophy of individualism um, and a, um, a real sense that um, the worst well, the worst thing in the world is um, is sloth or laziness. Um, with Roosevelt, the worst of the, dead, the of the seven deadly sins is uh, greed or avarice, and that comes out of his Roosevelt's Episcopalian social ba- uh, gospel background. So, without overdetermining things here, um, I think uh, John and I have uncovered another dimension, another layer to the explanation of how these two one-time similar progressives took such different um, responses or different avenues in addressing the Great Depression. There's something about um, Hoover's kind of Midwest Quakerism and something about Roosevelt's kind of um, Hudson Valley elite Episcopalianism that translated out of church into uh, politics in very different ways. Now, uh, comparison to Lincoln, uh, well, Lincoln is one of the, um, typically Washington, Lincoln, and FDR are rated as the, the, the top three American presidents. Certainly all three of them are in the top five of anybody's measure of successful American presidencies. Well, you don't want to compare FDR to Washington because he's kind of the the saint, right? Way, way back there. Um, and uh, Lincoln is in a uh, society that's more resembles um, Roosevelt, certainly, than, than Washington's did. So <clears throat> compare it, it was pretty gutsy call on John's part to compare uh, FDR to this, this great saint, um, uh, Abraham Lincoln. And um, there we're looking at um, Lincoln's own religion, which is not, strictly speaking, Christian. It's deeply biblical. But um, Lincoln had nothing much to say about and no particular relationship to or regard for Jesus Christ as a particular figure. And, uh, you know, making a lot of Jesus is pretty important to Christianity, yeah? Uh, So um, Lincoln is more like a classic Unitarian. He certainly was not an atheist. He had a skeptical uh, episode uh, or or period in his earlier life. But by the time he's president, um, Lincoln sees that something something is going on here that's way beyond anybody's uh, power to set up or to control. Um, I thought I was going to drive history, he said famously. It turns out history's driving me. And there, Lincoln, in the depths of the Civil War, which has exacted more casualties than all American wars, other American wars put together, Lincoln is presiding over this carnage. Um, And he's he's a deeply meditative person. And he, Lincoln, goes back to his father, Thomas Lincoln's so-called hard-shell Baptist background. Thomas Lincoln was a a kind of a lay preacher. 
And this was double predestinarian Calvinism of a particularly hard sort. Lincoln, Abraham, that is, had rejected that earlier in his life. But now a more benign version of that comes back in Lincoln. Um, and so in his f- famous second inaugural address, you know, um, um, both sides read to those, uh, read the same Bible, pray to the same God, both invoke their uh, God's aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. The prayers of neither have been answered. Um, the Almighty has his own purposes. Uh, so that kind of Calvinistically inflected uh, sense of destiny, um, a very hard-bitten, um, somewhat dark theology uh, on Lincoln's part. Well, FDR, um, after Lincoln, FDR is the president that has faced the equal equivalent crisis to Lincoln's, to the Civil War. And it's so striking that uh, FDR's is a very sunny outlook, uh, um, um, an emphasis upon human freedom, not upon this kind of predestination, an emphasis upon human goodness, not upon um, the, the, the grimmer side of human nature. So Lincoln and FDR um, both rose to their occasions. So we don't have, as in Hoover, failure versus success. Here we have, if you will, two success stories, but coming out of very different theological convictions. So these were, um, uh, in in drawing these contrasts, I think we understand more about Roosevelt, what a a peculiar and particular kind of combination he is. And also we get more light, I think, on Lincoln and on uh, Hoover. Yeah. Jim, this is a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. And I just want to reiterate, uh, we're talking with uh, J- James Bratt about A Christian and a Democrat, a religious biography of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's part of Erdman's religious biography series. Once again, it's a fantastic book. And uh, Jim, I just wanted to say thank you so much for uh, elaborating to us about this terrific book. And um, before I let you go, is uh, what are you working on now and what can we expect to learn from you in the future? Uh, well, I have um, two projects um, that I, I want to get done. Um, the one is, um, I, I think would be pretty controversial, and I'll just give you my working title. <clears throat> I'm not sure I'm going to write this book, but this is the one I kind of wonder whether I should write. Uh, the title would be, Is Donald Trump the Antichrist? And other essays in how American evangelicalism became so unchristian. <laughs> just, to, just to put the cards right on the table there. Um, I don't think that American evangelicalism has always been, um, uh, in fact, many times in the past, uh, American history has had a very positive uh, political um, expression. And boy, something has happened. Something has happened. So to figure out what has gone on in white American evangelicalism um, is one thing I'm interested in. That would be, as you can tell, a very polemical book. And by the way, no, I don't think that Donald Trump is the Antichrist. Uh, <laughs> I think the whole way, uh, what I would do in this, the first essay in this book, uh, we have to just get away from this whole fundamentalist um, approach to history as trying to figure out when the end times are and who's the Antichrist and, and the mark of the beast and all this stuff, I don't think is a very helpful way of understanding our, our times. Again, I'm um, 
much more interested in St. Paul here, who said uh, memorably that our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities and the powers. Um, in academic parlance today, we would say the hegemonic powers, um, the hegemonic mentalities, the, the, the things that have us in thrall, like guns and war and race and so forth. These are the things we have to struggle with, and looking for antichrists is not not helpful at all. Anyway, so that's the that's the um, sharp edge polemical book that I may or may not write, uh, <laughs> and I'll have a, a gentle listener please let me know whether you think I should do this or not. <laughs> <laughs> the other one is um, analysis of going back before the Civil War. Um, there. Uh, a remarkable conjunction um, right in the early 1840s of um, a, a, a spiritual crisis, a, a profound religious crisis in the lives of 20, 20 some people that become that kind of set the tone for American religion for the next um, for, for the next uh, generation or so. And the the working notion there is um, what happens when the Second Great Awakening dies. Um, American historians have given a lot of attention. We, we American historians generally uh, traditionally like to tell success stories, how new good things rise, but nobody, uh, fewer people talk about what makes them falter and what replaces them. So when the fires of the burned over district, when the fires of revivalism die out in the early 1840s, what replaces them? And this is a real question for, yeah. Um, 18, 20 uh, different people. And so I, and this would be kind of a collective biography to explore a profound moment of religious change. Wow. Both of those books sound fa- sound fantastic. So I hope you get a chance to write those. I would personally like to read them both. <laughs> well, why don't you write <laughs> one of them for me so I don't have to? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I choose the second one because the first one sounds sounds way too polemical yeah, for my team. Yeah, 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 I, uh, yeah I, I get that, and um, the better angel of my nature has me going for the second one too. But sometimes, uh, just watching the news, I get I get too um, uh, too agitated. <laughs> no, I told. I totally understand. I agree with you. It's very partisan, and no, it's and just I, and I'm joking. All joking aside, it's a it's a very valid topic that really does need to be teased out. Um, I'll, I mean, regardless of what we think of the Trump administration, I always joke with my um, colleagues. I always say, regardless of what we think about Trump or everything that's going on, I said. I can just guarantee one thing: the history books are going to be so good. <laughs> they're basically they're basically going to write themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there will be. Um, there will, I think the partisanship will continue. <laughs> oh, well, Jim, thanks so much for being on. Really appreciate it, and thanks so much for you know enlightening us on FDR's religious mind. Again, it's a it's a really wonderful topic and a, an unexplored topic until now. So, thank you again. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure for me to um, talk about this this good project, and I hope that uh, people will pick it up and uh, be uh, be informed and maybe inspired. Absolutely. All right, take care. Okay, you too. Thanks, Daniel.